You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Um, we're in the middle at the moment of a series on the talents, uh, not the talents, the parables. That's the other half of the, the sentence I'm going to be talking about in a minute. Um, specifically, what we're trying to do is to explore what are some very well-known and familiar passages by taking ourselves back and trying to put ourselves in the perspective of the people who Jesus would have um, been talking to. Um, just checking, because the microphone appears to be little bit, but that may be okay. Yeah, just checking on the echo. Um, so we can be tempted to think that parables were something that Jesus invented, because we don't really come across them in our Bible before the start of Jesus' ministry. In reality, they were, they were a part of the Jewish tradition long before Jesus came along. And so the use of them for Jesus was a very natural part of his ministry, and in order to really understand what he was saying through them, we need to um, understand their place and how they were being talked about. So that's, that's the perspective we're going to take this morning. So we've reached the parable of the talents, um, and we're going to have a look at that in Matthew 25, and I think Richard's going to put the um, passage up on the screen. So we're looking at 14 to 30. You've already had a nice little um, precy of the story, but I think there's a little bit more in there, so, so I will read um, the full passage for you. Um, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, You entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has 
who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so this is one of these interesting parts of the Bible where we have two versions, almost, of the same part of the story. So Matthew 25 has what is called the parable of the talents, um, and that's sandwiched between the parable of the ten virgins and then Jesus going on to talk about separating the sheep from the goats in the end times. We're not going to go into the ten virgins because those who are here next week will get to um, enjoy that part next week, I understand. Luke 19 has a very similar parable, which is called the parable of the miners, um, but that's sort of presented in a different um, perspective. Both appear to be around the same time in in, um, Jesus' ministry, around the time of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, maybe slightly before, maybe slightly after, um, fairly close to the time he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, which we often refer to now as the Last Supper. So in both Gospels, the theme around this time is Jesus looking forward to the rapidly approaching end of his ministry on earth. Um, In Matthew, this parable forms part of a response to the disciples whilst in Jerusalem, asking what the signs of the end times might be. But in Luke, it seems to come a little bit earlier, whilst they're still in Jericho on the way, and the suggestion is that it's told as a deterrent to those who might be thinking that as they imminently Um, journey to Jerusalem, um, that would be when the kingdom of God would be coming in, that Jesus would be (coughs) ruling on earth, and a lot of the sort of surrounding political and economic events of being um, ruled by the Romans would come to an end. So they're they're very similar, but I think it's worth bearing those in. I think this is very much a parable where Jesus' words after the end of the parable of the sower are worth bearing in mind, where the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has been given more, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, that will be taken from them. That is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. And you'll immediately pick up that there's that cross-reference back to what Jesus says in this parable about um, whoever has been given more, they will have an abundance. So in this parable, there there is room for a lot of different interpretations, and various people have taken things in various different ways. Um, So this is a case, really, of listening to God and wrestling to what he's trying to say, perhaps individually to each of us, um, which may be slightly different. Um, certainly in terms of what we have tended to do here um, in Oasis Bath is that we're not necessarily trying to present a particular uh, viewpoint on something, maybe more so to open some questions that you may think about, and it may be that someone else comes and does the same talk in the future and comes with a different perspective on it. I think that's very healthy um, and something that So, as I said, a key focus in this series has been trying to consider these parables as they might have applied to a first-century Jewish audience hearing them. So we're going to try and apply some of those principles here and see whether that makes a difference to how we see this. 
crux of the story in both Gospels is that we have a master who entrusts his slaves with considerable sums of money whilst he goes off for what we think is probably a long period of time. When he comes back, he judges their efforts. The ones who have done best in monetary terms appear to have been praised and rewarded. Those that have produced nothing get chastised and or punished. So in terms of our basic parable outline that we've been looking at, there are certain key elements here. We've got a main character, the master. He has a problem. He's needing to go away and how he, can, how he maintains his business while he is, he's away. His solution, to leave it in, in the charge of his slaves. Um, now he has some that appear to cooperate and some act as an obstruction. Um, and the end moral story, as in all parables, there's always an end moral story, appears to be that those that don't produce will be punished. It's worth remembering that we have two different versions of this parable. In one, we, do, we just have three slaves, um, two of whom act in a certain way, one of them doesn't. In the Luke version, there are ten slaves. We only actually hear about three of them, um, but, but you have the same problem. And what you have is you have two groups. You have one group that essentially are the good guys, and one group that essentially are the bad guys. Um, again, we have two different stories about the sums of money that are involved. I think we need to clear that up before we start. Sometimes organisations, and I think it's, we've had it happen here in the past, make a play on this parable as a bit of a fundraising exercise. And they'll give out lots of £10 notes, and they'll say to people, right, go on, off you go, let's see what you can produce with that. Now, inevitably, everyone comes back with more, and the parable appears to be proven because it's worked, hasn't it? In reality, there's probably a lot of cheating that goes on in these exercises um, because the result is more, uh, more a result of charity than real business acumen. Obviously, someone goes out and, buy, and buys some flour, some sugar, and some eggs and makes a load of cakes. What they don't tell you is that they already had icing sugar and colouring and vanilla flavouring in the, in the cupboard. And they go and sell, sell them to people who don't really want a load of cakes, but buy them anyway because they want to support the cause. Um, here we're actually talking about, obviously, a much harder situation. This is um, first century um, Palestine. There weren't people buying cakes just because you know, they wanted to help the master out. Um, again, we can, we can talk about, you know, if we sort of looked at these being, you know, £10, £2, one pound, you might think, well, if, it, if I'd given you a pound and said, go and make something with that, you think, well, what am I going to do with that? I can't even go and buy a bucket and sponge and wash cars with that. Um, no, these were serious amounts of money. Luke talks about the slaves being given a minor, which was probably about, worth about 100 days' wages. So we're talking at least 6,000 pounds each if we, in today's money on minimum wage. Matthew talks about numbers of talents being given out. Now, these, again, goes to prove that sometimes different people hearing what was probably the same story write it down and then it comes down to us differently. But um, a talent appears to equate to about 15 years wages each. So we're talking a, a very big sum of money. Being given a talent to do something with was not something that you had no room to play with. There was room for error. You could make mistakes and still, as long as you didn't lose the lot, put it all on the, the fastest camel that you'd had a, a tip for at the 10.15 at um, Jerusalem Racecourse or whatever they had in those days. Um, no, these were serious amounts of money that you had plenty of room to play with. So that puts a little bit into perspective what goes on here. 
decision on the part of the last slave to, to bury his entrusted cash was clearly a strategic choice. It wasn't a case of, well, what the hell do I do with this? He had to do, there was plenty of room to do that. Again, in our culture, economic growth now is so normal that the concept of someone coming back and doubling their money, or in the case of the Luke version, multiplying it by 10, doesn't seem abnormal. That's something that we accept. Companies make big profits. That's entirely normal. Now, logic might suggest to us, on consideration, that for someone to make more, someone else has to have less. But the sort of emergence of global trade and regional trade and whatever else make that concept not really something that we, we think about. If you're in a first century Jewish village, you have to wonder what listening to some of that um, concept of the slaves making really significant profits um, came across to them. Did anyone stop, for example, to wonder who'd lost out as a result of this trade? Were there those listening at the time who regarded the last servant and his refusal to exploit others to gain more for an already rich master as, in fact, the hero of the story and the others as the villains? I suspect that's probably not um, the interpretation that Jesus intended, but it's worth considering. Um, however, let's go back to our exploration of this concept. It's useful to point out that in the Jewish um, tradition, the rabbis would be using parables themselves in their teaching. And um, Those of us who are here some time back would have heard um, the rabbi that came and spoke to us explain that they have the core text, the Torah, which is the, for us is mostly the Old Testament. But they have another book that goes alongside that, which is full of parables which they use to uh, help to explain those texts. So let me read this and see if it rings any bells. This comes from uh, rabbinic parable teaching. A king has two servants, one who loves and fears the king, and one who only fears him. The king goes away and leaves his palace and estate to those servants to deal with. The one who only fears the king does nothing, and so the gardens and the grounds become desolate and waste ground. The one who loves the king plants, trees, and flowers, and fruit. When the king returns, he's pleased with the one who loves him, but angry with the one who only fears him. So the purpose of this parable in rabbinic teaching is partly to illustrate the difference between loving God and just fearing him. But there's also an element that the one who fears enjoys this life by ignoring the king's interests and spending his time on himself, whereas the one who loves the king enjoys serving him in this life also gets to enjoy um, the next life. Now that, I think, is probably something that maybe Jesus was um, aware of, maybe something that he'd heard. Obviously, we know that Jesus, in his younger days, spent a lot of time in the temple before he started his ministry, was listening to the rabbis teach, and obviously on one occasion, um, taking part in that teaching. So if we turn to this parable of Jesus we can apply the same logic. It's likely, as I say, that Jesus was aware of the context. Um, and I think it's fairly clear from the text that we read that our final servant had an element of fear in his motivation. He says, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not, uh, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, and I was afraid. His, his fear appears to have motivated him, motivated him above all else. 
But was there also a sense that he was enjoying the freedom of his master's absence? Whilst the cat was away, the mice will play, etc. Was he getting on with lording it around the town and therefore too busy even to take the time to invest the money for a basic return on interest? You know, the master's away. I think we, we can probably imagine that you know, in our historic situation, this was perhaps a bit like the lord of the manor was away. You know, if he'd gone away for a few years, you know, his servants might think that they were the boss of the town. Um, um, so for what were considerable sums of money, there was a form of banking around in, in those days, and that was the established custom. But burying the money was considered that time to be probably the best way of prote protecting it. There was another rabbinic parable at, about, at that time about a miser who sold everything that he had in return for gold, which he then went and buried. Unfortunately, his frequent trips back to check that it was still there got spotted by someone who then went and stole it. The moral element of that, that parable um, comes as the friend who then advised him that he might as well take a stone and bury it and think of it as gold, seeing as he made no use of the gold and his actual existence rather than a stone was pointless. And I think that's perhaps bear, worth bearing in mind in, in this context that um, if we're thinking of what Jesus um, was talking about, the master entrusting us as, as his people, with something, if we don't use it, we might as well consider it a stone and bury it. So by contrast, the other two servants appear to have been motivated by something more. They clearly wanted to please the master. There's no obvious suggestion that they knew in advance that they would be receiving any tangible reward for their efforts. And arguably, in, the, in, in any event, when the master comes back, they don't get anything for themselves, they just get a bigger job. Um, managing more money in the master's interests. Uh, I suspect there probably was some better pay with that, but we don't know that. Um, now, in some arenas, this parable can be used as a justification for doing as well as we can in this life financially for ourselves. I think my own view is that it's nothing of the sort. I'd imagine there may have been an element of fear that something may go wrong and they might lose all the money. They were, however, able to see beyond that fear to a master that they loved and apparently trusted enough to be forgiving if their well-intentioned efforts didn't actually result in a positive return. So in love for their master, they used what they had been trusted with to produce the best they could, and so that when he returned, he would be pleased. I think it's worth pausing and switching back across to the passage in Luke there, where each of the... Um, Slaves were given the same amount of money. Um, one came back with ten times, one came back with five times. And the master in both cases was pleased. So there's no sense that um, it all had to be the same. The reality was that what the master was, was, appears to have been um, interested in was their attitude, their, their interest, their care. So we need to be careful that we don't think, well, hold on a minute, I'm, you know, I... I'm struggling with this, I'm afraid of this, I don't, want to, I don't want to do this. The reality in the whole of this passage is that the master, i.e. God, is entrusting us with what we're able to do and rewards what he sees in our hearts, not the, the numerical adventure, uh, numerical outcome. So that parallels for us in our Christian lives. We're entrusted with blessings by God, which we should be looking to use enthusiastically in his service. 
that when he returns, he will be pleased. We don't do that. Be- we do that because we love him, not particularly for earthly reward. Those blessings might be tangible things that we're to use, so that might be money or time, but it might also be intangible things like our experience of God's love, which we're able to share with others and generate an increase in. Another context that Jesus' audience would have been well aware of was the context of testing. Moses and David, for example, were first trusted with small tasks, tending flocks of sheep, Having done okay in these small tasks, they were then trusted with a much bigger job of leading God's people. Actually, you could see that as testing, or you could see that as God letting his chosen child find their feet with something manageable, um, rather than just chucking them in the deep end first. Um, So one of the parts I love about both versions of this parable is the different servants are treated as an individual. In one, as I said, they're sent out with the same, but achieve different returns. In the other, they're sent out with different amounts um, and whilst they come back with different numeric amounts, their actual percentage return is the same. And I think the clear message from this is, a, is about a master who knows his individual people, assesses them as individuals, and doesn't regard the same from us. That, to me, means that when God gives me a task or a challenge, it's a me-sized one, not one that's a one-size-fit-all task. So, you know, I'm up here this morning... Um, I get one talent's worth of preaching on a Sunday morning. I know there are plenty of people in the church who are much better and much more skilled at this who get ten talents, and I think that's probably right. Um, The last concept I think Jesus wanted to communicate with his audience at the time was that although the end times was something he had talked about to prepare them for, the master was going to be going away for a long time. Specifically in Luke, this parable comes in response to the suggestion that as they neared Jerusalem, there was a sense that Jesus was then and there going to seize power and take over and his kingdom would come in. But there's no sense in either telling of these parables of any warning that the master was coming back. The servants were found as they were, either having done what they had planned or, as the case may be, not. This isn't like the kids having a party when their parents are away, knowing that they're coming back from holiday on a set date, so they know they have time to clear up, remove the food stains from the sofa and make it look good. Um, This is about being prepared and being in the right mindset at all times. And this theme of being prepared is something that the prior parable perhaps looks at, but as I say, that's next week. So... In conclusion, for me, the message seems to be that we either commit wholeheartedly to serving our master in love and devotion, so that when he returns, we will be pleased, or we live in fear that he will come back unexpectedly and find us lacking and struggling to bluff our way out of it. Where are we in this story? Have we metaphorically buried what Jesus has offered us in terms of his blessings and presence in our lives? so that we can hedge our bets, taking advantage of what the here and now has to offer? Or have we properly embraced the love that Jesus offered and committed ourselves to living a life of putting him and his people first? That, I suggest, is perhaps the challenge to us today from understanding what Jesus was saying all those years ago. Shall we pray and then we'll um, perhaps return to worship and then... Heavenly Father, thank you that you um, treat us all as individuals and you have me-sized tasks 
and blessings and challenges for each of us. Thank you that you love us so much that you want to be in this relationship of mutual love and enjoyment and pleasure of working together. Thank you that whoever we are, whatever shape we are in and whatever place we are in in this life, you know us intimately and are able to shape your plans around that. Help us this morning to sensitively consider where we are realistically, not undermining ourselves, not letting perhaps our problems with self-confidence um, or anxiety speak to us, but let us hear your voice inviting us to come and share, your master, share our master's pleasure. Amen. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.